Lots of idle fingers snapped to my command A lovely pair of heels that kicked to beat the band Contemplating nature can be fascinating It's time for the Daily Review, a podcast dedicated to reviews and discussion of TV, movies, and books. Look for us at Daily Review on Facebook and Twitter and dailyreview.com on the web. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. This is Paul Daly here with my wife, Caroline. Hey, guys. And tonight we're here to discuss the fifth episode of Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This one is called Doink. <laughs> what an awkward, dorky sound, right? Because you're supposed to say it like doink. Super awkward. So what I think the title means, Paul, is I think pretty much all the characters get hit over the head with the quintessential frying pan because like life is actually taking the first step forward from what was. So in this one, we have Midge getting a job and Joel's trying to introduce Penny to his friends and his parents and Midge tries to get to the gaslight and do a gig and all these different parts. And like at each point in time, they get like smacked over the head like, doing. it is not what you thought it was going to be like. Is there any point in this episode when they actually say the word doink? There is, yes. Herb Smith explains a joke that he wrote for her. And he goes, she says like, you know, I, I went home and I hit my husband over the head with the frying pan. And oh, doink, yeah. and then he goes, that's "No, right. you're supposed to go doink." Like right. that's the joke. That's the punchline. That's it. And she's like, "That's an idiotic punchline." But it's but the frying pan is figuratively applied to several characters. All of them. I think everybody we deal with gets a smack dose of reality here, and how it's really all going to go down. The episode starts with one of those cool. It's set to music. It's got the period music, and it's all up. Beat and she's on her way up to get the new job. Altman and it's uh, I love being a girl is the song and so it's just very you know fanciful and just carefree. But she wants to be an elevator operator and this is a period when men have some jobs and women have other jobs. Yeah, and the, it was completely cool to just say that. Like you know what, lady shoppers won't like it if it's not a man elevator operator. And she's like, that's a very good point. Like, <laughs> boy, times have changed, huh, folks? It's like that first episode of Mad Men when Joan un unsheathes the typewriter and says, don't be intimidated by the technology. They've made it simple enough for a woman to understand. Oh, my God. Remember that? <laughs> yes. Yes. And, I, and she always refers to them as being girls, not women. Mm -hmm. So she's yeah. always like, don't be intimidated, girls. Like she's always says stuff like that. Yeah. I thought that there were so many tiny moments in this scene in the B. Altman interview that I swear out we could just discuss it for days. But just every part of it, the fact that she hand-printed you know, just like print letters, her her resume. And, you know, she didn't really have anything on there really um, for work experience. So she tries to highlight her volunteer work. And, you know, we kind of forget how young she really is. So things like being a candy striper and all this stuff, like she's really only been out of college for five years. She married directly out of college and immediately had two kids. So even though to us, it's like, well, she's a mom with two kids. It's like, yeah, but five seconds ago, she was a college student volunteering as a candy striper, like just really like a spit ago. Yeah, I remember writing those first, first resumes 
right out of college, no experience. You were you were grasping for anything that sounded important to put on there. Otherwise, the resume was going to be like two lines long. Right. You're like, I am a leader within <laughs> my family. Like I set the table without being asked. I right. take ownership of tasks. I right. delegate. I ask my younger sibling to do my chores. You're like looking for any scrap of uh, like legitimacy. Right. But- There's another part of this that you wouldn't know, Paul, which is what a lot of my friends are going through right now, which is after you've been a mom for a while, you don't have anything to put on there. Like college was a long time ago and maybe your first job or second job was a long time ago. And like I've been out of the workforce for like 15 years now. And I would have to be like, I was a leader during a volunteer drive. Like I would have to put those things and hope that they like tried to highlight my skill set, but it is rough. And you know, true to form of like women trying to get either initially into the workforce or getting back into the workforce. What did you think about that entire like Santa Claus? We have to make sure they're sober portion. I thought that was just typical uh, Sherman Palladino, you know, texture and color to add some, you know, real world kind of stuff. Like that was sort of the Al's pancake world kind of stuff. Yes. But in this uh, this universe. That would be total Gilmore Girls for those of you who don't know what Al's pancake world is. So she gets totally rebuffed and has to just like kind of slink out of there, but has this like shining moment at the cosmetic counter and doing the idea strikes. She should become a cosmetics counter girl, not a elevator operator. Now so this is interesting. You would try everything you could to get a job rather than work at a counter someplace. I I mean, I don't mean to offend anybody that works at a counter listening to this, but if you went to college, you might be like, I sure wish I did what I liked rather than this. Well, I think that she, like she put it, she said, my whole life has been leading up to this moment because it's basically like, you know, she, she understood that the, the subjects that she studied in college, Russian literature, had nothing to do with real life. And, you know, she says that she had tried to think about becoming a grammar school teacher and the interviewer is like, well, why didn't you follow that up? And she's like, because I met some grammar school kids, which is like, she is so flat over children. It's like not even funny for having children as young as she has them. It's like, oh boy, Esther and Ethan are in, are right. in a world of hurt. She's way over having They better kids. have an independent streak. <laughs> they pretty much do, don't they? I mean, I swear to God, they kind of run their own program. I don't know where Esther is pretty much ever. Ethan runs by. This is Felber. Exactly. So she gets the job. And so she we get some new characters in the story here. We have Mary. We have uh, she's sort of like the the sassy independent woman. We have Vivian, who is like the kind of numbskull. Yeah, they, they yeah, she's really like a flit, right? Like she just kind of goes around. She calls everyone by celebrity names that they look like. We have Harriet, who is an aspiring model. She's also um counter girl who's supposed to help out anyone with darker colored skin, which I thought, you know, again, adding that texture of the times. I I don't know. I feel like in today's world, everyone, if you're working on a makeup counter, you should know how to know anybody's different shade of, of skin color. I definitely do not feel like it's like the white people deal with the white people and darker colored skins deal with darker colored skin people like this doesn't I don't know that it doesn't that doesn't jive with me now. I wouldn't think I couldn't walk up to a woman with darker skin than me and ask to see like different colors in the counter. 
I, I it wouldn't even occur to me that she wouldn't know what colors I would look good in. That's I assume out, that's their job. That's that's outside my experience. We have Mrs. O'Toole introduced to us, who I had a complete flashback to the secretary in the pilot episodes of um, it wasn't in the initial episode, but it was one of the early episodes of Gilmore Girls when they first go to Chilton. And it's like this mm. really ugly woman. They always put the camera like right up in her grill and she's just really surly and everything. That's totally Mrs. O'Toole, like hardcore. I wonder who appeared in Amy's life that left this indelible imprint of this militaristic woman figure who sees to it to run the lives of other women beneath her. I feel like they exist all the time. I mean, they're like the school marm. You know, like you've seen them, you know, you know who they are. You know, they're those they're the women that like that take pride into thinking like, you know, you younger women are a bunch of idiots and I have to keep you in line. You know, they could yeah, be like, like a this, mother superior kind of thing. Yeah, 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 totally. So they exist all over the place. I know that you totally keyed in on this lounge scene when they went in to go uh, actually have the first day. Oh, yeah. They're all doing bullshit, and then they take the time to go and clock in before they go out to the floor. Maybe that's the way they did it back then, but how we did it at Jamal's <laughs> grocery store in Kingwood, Texas, was you ran, basically, from the door to the time clock and then kind of moseyed over to wherever it was you actually worked. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. We did the same thing at Randall's, also our neighborhood grocery store. We would do the same thing. We would haul ass to the time clock and then tie your shoe, go to the bathroom, <laughs> whatever else you needed to do. It best be on company time. But these ladies that were very honorable, they, you know, put away their stuff. They had those signs up that they had to do where you had to be polite and be pretty and all these things. I was like, oh, my. I can't. I, we did not have that hanging up in the lounge. There wasn't can a, you imagine it? I can attest at Randall's. There was no standard for prettiness on the floor. Whoa! <laughs> Caroline was a shining exception <laughs> in a cesspool of mediocrity. Oh my god! You were awful, awful, awful. The actual job itself, she seems to take to like a duck to water, though, right? I mean, she has to kind of do some tough stuff, like learn the floor, which you pointed out. Uh, learning the store seems like something. She'd already have that knowledge because the reason she picked B. Altman was she liked the store because she goes there herself. It seems like it. It seems like as somebody who does any amount of shopping, you would know like where the ladies departments were and where the, you know, I just. That you may seems, get fuzzy on like the tools or the menswear I versus. I you shop for your husband, Paul. Or, no, stop. You shop for you shop for all the people in your family. You shop for gifts for people and stuff like I don't know. I mean, you could point out the majority of the local department stores and I could tell you generally, I mean, you know, every once in a while they change up display areas or something, but generally it could be like children's are upstairs, men's downstairs, women's on the main floor. Like, I mean, I could tell you that and it's not, it's just from being like a normal old consumer, you know? So there's a little bow guy, but what did you think about everyone's responses to Midge's work? I know you loved Abe. Abe was great because he had very good dad responses. He had questions about her preparedness and her kind of sureness level that this was something she was going to c 
commit to and actually do. I was super proud of her answers too, right? I mean, Very he went down answers. the whole thing. I mean, first of all, I had to say that like his language in this and really even Midge's language was so Gilmore Girls to me and so Richard Gilmore so much. The whole copious amounts of coffee. definitely that line exactly has been uttered on Gilmore Girls. The whole part where she's like, I'm going to work. I I need my own money. No strings attached. One of the Gilmore Girls episodes names is Those Are Strings Pinocchio. Like it's all about strings tie you with money and stuff. That's a defining theme of Lorelai's life up until the pilot episode is existing without strings attached. Exactly. Yes. So – he goes through that whole thing. And some of the things that he says is so hilarious to me. He's like, you know, if it rains, you still have to go. And she was like, I assume so. <laughs> and it was like, you know, and he was like, and you know how to get there. Like things like that. You're like, <laughs> I mean, it's so like funny and comical. And then it's also so basic. It makes you wonder, like, again, she is a grown woman who's married with two children. Do you think she doesn't know how to get to the store? Do you think she doesn't know that she has to, people go to work if it's raining out? Like, I mean, how naive do they think she is, you know? By the sounds of it, quite a bit. But the reaction from the mom, let me tell you my read. Okay. And you tell me what your read was or what. Okay, this is from Rose. Her reaction, go ahead. I thought it was mostly tied up in the disappointment of having to accept that this is the way things were moving forward, that getting the job represented not really having any chance of going back with Joel. Like that was like taking a firm step on down a new path and it wasn't the path that she wanted. That's what I got. Yes. And I think too, to just like underscore that when Miriam is getting the tour and she says something to Mary and Vivian about, you know, her um, that she was married and and the girls are like, oh, sad. And she's like, no, you know, it, it, my my husband left me. I have you know two kids and I'm working. They were like the girl goes modern and sad. <laughs> and, and it's like it, I think that that like was supposed to tell us like what a working woman's and mother's position look like in the world like like it's fine to be a working woman like no one was looking down at mary and vivian and harriet and and all their jobs you know mrs o'toole everybody was was being you know a productive citizen it wasn't anything negative but the fact that she had kids at home and she was working was like oh my god like what happened and i feel like that's how rose is acting like it's very like this was not the plan you know i mean when we when you got married and you had kids we there was a path you're supposed to raise the kids esther's like not even a year old you know right. and it's like oh my god you know like you're going back to work so other people are going to raise your children and here's the silly thing of course they had zelda and that's their housekeeper my guess is they had nannies when rose was you know a younger mother so it's kind of silly in that like it would have been acceptable if she was going to volunteer things, but the fact that she would need to work for money is like a... I mean, maybe it's a product of the period, but it's also an absurdly upper class point of view mm. where you could have your kids move back in with you and it ain't no thing. You know, we're just feeding five or we were feeding two before, you know, like right. most families would be like, uh, when you go into work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When are you going to contribute to the household for right. sure? I don't know. I mean, you're a hundred percent right about Rose's 
portion about the, that this definitely puts a huge obstacle into being back with Joel. Because, you know, having any bit of independence and seeking that means you do no longer need to be dependent, you know? And so then she doesn't have to wait around. The way that she actually handles it, the way that she acts like she keeps forgetting that Miriam has a job, you know, like she's like, she's like, oh, I just came in, you know, and she's like, oh, from where? She's like, from work. She's like, where? I like, what are I you talking about? I can't think of an exact example, but I'm positive. I've seen Emily Gilmore pull that. Oh, move. yes, 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 yes. Like, you know, something like, oh, you're getting married or, you know, something like that. Like, oh, that's news to me. Or no, the, the scene where she can't remember what Lorelai's drink is at Friday night dinner. Yes. And she's she's like, like, it's a sidecar. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yes. And she's like, no, I've never had a sidecar. Like, yes, it's it's exactly that kind of stuff. And she's like, well, I can't keep up with all your comings and goings. And it's like, oh, my God. Even uh, so, I, I felt happy that Midge tried to see that her mom was having such a hard time. She she had answered all the questions with Abe, like satisfactorily. So I felt like, you know, he was like, it wasn't happy with it, but he felt like, OK, well, you're, you seem to be proceeding responsibly in this at least you you have the majority of your bases covered now when it comes to rose midge actually offers like a peace offering like she brings her that brand new lipstick and she's like no one else in new york hasn't she's like oh great i'm a guinea pig this is totally quintessential emily where you try to give her something and she's like you know no i just thought it was a beautiful color and you would like it and then rose is like what you don't like what what colors i wear and you're like <laughs> oh like the conversation is so difficult and like she opens it up and she smells it she goes this smells funny thank you and it's like <laughs> rose you know you're such a beast you know but you know as as miriam sort of just absorbs that though she doesn't fight back she just is sort of like okay when she throws herself back on the couch and she has all those slips underneath her dress mm -hmm. like were, were you petticoats yes were you just like in awe that women dressed like that Oh, sure. I mean, that's like needlessly elaborate for, I mean, no, no woman today would even think of doing anything like I don't, that. Honestly, besides a bridal store, I don't really know Unless, where you yeah, could even if buy you were, that If you were kind of putting stuff. on a wedding gown or going to some kind of costume party? ball where royalty might show up or something. I don't even think people would put that kind of petticoat under there then. Honestly, honestly, I don't see those. That, that was like ultra ruffles. Like you were supposed to see the ruffles, Paul. Like she was a little girl. This wasn't just to hold the dress out, which it was, but it was the way that the ruffles were at the bottom. You're supposed to see them like a tutu under there. So, I mean, that part, like if, when she sits down, it's supposed to look almost like like flower petals around her. I mean, isn't that like cray cray? Do you think the high heels were meant to kind of finish off the kind of the image of she is still pretty naive and a little in over her head? She can get there. But I mean, standing all day in heels, a lot of a lot of today's women would be like, They'd know that up <laughs> that being yeah. working on your feet and heels is a bad idea. Well, and interestingly enough, I would say that during the like 80s or whatever, it was the opposite. So like it seemed that Miriam was going to wear her high heels to work and change into flats. Right. Yeah. When she got to work, which meant like it was more important societally for all of them to see her in high heels. But at work behind the counter, she could wear the flats. What's interesting about that is. 
it flopped in like the 80s. Remember, like there's that whole part. And again, in Gilmore Girls, there's a there's a joke about working girl. And it's because Emily takes off her high heels and puts on sneakers to walk around the town and then is going to put and she's like, what's up, working girl? Because it's back from like that movie in the 80s where it's like Melanie Griffith, like you you would wear sneakers with your suits and stuff like to walk the streets to, of New York City to get to your job. And when you got to work, you put on your heels. Ah. So it was like the opposite. Yeah. So it's like, but this was like more worrying about walking. the. Sh- you wouldn't walk around on the streets of New York City in, without wearing heels in Miriam's time. But behind the counter, it's okay. But total flop the other way. Weird, right? Yeah. And now these days, I would say women go out of their way to try to find other ways like wedges and other stuff to wear that you don't have to wear high heels. I mean, it's really bad for you, Paul. They're really bad for your feet. They're really bad for your back. They're really, really bad. You shouldn't be, your body's not meant to be tipped forward on your tiptoes. So would you say that Miriam's foray in getting a job and first days in the workplace, would you call them successful? I, you know, I wouldn't call it like a 10 out of 10, but I'd, I'd, I'd give it uh, like a six out of 10, you know? The uh, Yeah, I think she actually found something that she's very good at. And, you know, she's clearly like done her own personal homework on the matters and stuff. So when she's doing like those makeup tutorials and stuff, like it seems very much like it makes her happy. Like she's actually helping other people and, you know, doing a lot of things. I know makeup counters might seem silly, but, you know, they, they really go out of their way to try to show that like, you know, it's not just about makeup. Like this has a lot to do with women's self-esteem, a lot to do with what they were feeling like the, this face again, that they're supposed to put forward all the time. So these makeup counter women are like their lifeline when you think about it. Cause if it's so important that you have makeup on when you wake up in the morning for your husband to see you, how important is makeup? Like really important. You know, these women are not just like the, like, Oh yeah, whatever. I guess it's like, Every woman has to go see these people and they have to be right or they'll be so embarrassed. It was a good match. I mean, do you remember, do you recall that uh, when, before she got the job um, and she was helping Mary uh, yes. make a sale, she, she pointed out this color. She knew it by name with, and I think she said it was new, didn't she? I think so. So that's a person that, you know is already up on on the product just in their own spare time. So. Yeah, but I mean, again, like, I don't think it is spare time. That's what I'm talking about. Like, it, like makeup and cosmetics and beauty was so important, specifically, like, being made up, that it wouldn't even be considered your spare time. Like, this is an important part of your day, is, like, putting your face on and, and studying up about what the new makeups were. Like, it's important. It, it wasn't a free time thing. It was an important part of your thing, like knowing anything else in your day, like knowing probably your most important recipe or whatever, <laughs> whatever, you know, good woman stuff. Whatever. Like that. And I mean, and it comes into play in other parts. Remember when she blurts out the, how to get the stain out. Remember? Mm, yeah. You're supposed to have this shit memorized feet. You're supposed to know what is the current product of each like cosmetic line. Like this is the, the wealth of knowledge that we were supposed to have. It's so bonkers, right? Cause we don't know any of that stuff anymore. Well, I would say that I would say that like myself, like, and I think most women are probably like this. I kind of ebb and flow. Like there's times when it's like very important that you feel like you're very well made up. And other times, you know, I don't know when you have little kids or something where you're like, meh, I'm like doing my best. And then, you know, other times again, where you feel like I need to get my mojo back, you know, and then you like go and you try to zhuzh and everything. But 
at no point did I feel like I consistently had to keep up with all of the makeup trends and everything. It's so different now with like Snapchat and all that crap where people like do makeup tutorials on YouTube and Facebook. I mean, it's like all up in your face again of exactly how you're supposed to be handling. I was just learning how to do a self-tanner contouring on my face. Yeah, I know. I know, right? But if you guys haven't looked into it, go YouTube that business because it's like if you do contouring every day, this is a way to use self-tanner where like your contour lines are like on for like several weeks. What? Sounds dangerous. Bonkers. It's spray tan. I know. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> you might look you might come out looking all Lion King like you're fresh from the stage. <laughs> right. <laughs> like in these streaks. Or Phantom of the Opera or, or something <laughs> unintended. Anything could happen, folks. But you know, you just have to exfoliate that crap right <laughs> off if it goes bananas for you. But I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think this entire concept of like beauty fashion you know going back to midge like you know measuring all her body parts every single night that's something that seems to have slipped away unless they're not showing it to us she doesn't seem to be measuring her calves and her ankles and her wrists every day i wonder if she still does that well she has other plates in the air like bombing do you think midge can come up with a what do they call it tight 10 i think that she could i think that this is very akin to what you were saying about wearing heels versus flats i don't think she realized how much hard work and how exhausting how physically and mentally exhausting a real job really is and that comedy is really no different in terms of like you've got to you got to grow a thick skin you've got to put in the hard work and this whole part with the, the gaslight and all this entire chunk of this episode you know, she's more worried about silly stuff like, I'm going to use a nom de plume. And then they're like, well, what is your fake name? She's like, I don't know. Fanny Jones. And they're <laughs> Fanny like, Midge. <laughs> he goes, yeah, introducing Fanny Midge. What? <laughs> so dumb. But that's the thing. It's like she, it's like she sort of thought about it like in a frou-frou way, like I'm going to have a nom de plume. But she didn't bother to think, well, what is your name going to actually be then? You know, it's sort of like the idea of being a comedian, but she hasn't done the work to be a comedian. This whole first set after work, it reminded me heavily of when we were young and different friends were getting their first jobs. They would re retell things that had happened at work in social situations. And it was like a it was like a 100 percent ratio. Everything that was said was not funny. There was not anything that that was ever brought up about something that happened at work that ever anyone else could identify with or think was very funny other than just like. Just I'm laughing because I'm your friend, but that doesn't, uh, you know, I'm going to forget you said that in a second, you know, in our own little social circle, I, I personally laid down the law that you can't talk about work. Oh, you did that? I thought I said no more work stories. Well, I said it with Brian. I don't know who you said it with. I feel like I totally made that rule because here's the thing. Whatever happens to you at work is funny and hysterical and, and important to you. And means nothing to anyone else. Like, ever, ever. They're like, oh, there's this girl. And she, like, put her time clock in, her time clock, her time card in, like, sideways. Like, I mean, and everyone else was like, get on with it. Like, at the time, things are so hysterical at work. I don't know if it's because you're, like, freaking punchy or... I don't know what it it's, is. It's situational. It's And it's like, you're, like, in an island unto yourself. Everything is so context 
related that it's like who cares if you didn't know the skew number for the prime rib you know every, like every situation can have its funny. its own rules for comedy i mean when we were going to the nicu not the happiest place in the world we could still find little shit to laugh at that we did. outside of that setting you'd be like why are you laughing <laughs> right. at things related to premature babies? There can't be anything funny right. with that, right. you know. And so, but it's still like save your sanity. I swear. And that's that's. I mean, I've tried to live by this. Don't bring homework stories. My whole time being an adult partner to Caroline, <laughs> and when I do bring home stories, it's either because it's weighing on me in such a way that it's affecting my mood and stuff like that. So that means it's bad shit. Or I legit think it's funny outside, like outside of the situation, I've evaluated it. It's still funny and I'm, and it's worth telling her you know what? that those, happens like once every those six things, months. They, if it is something like that, then it has to be so universal. Like someone like farted in the elevator. Right. Like it really has to have <laughs> nothing to do. Farts with, are funny anywhere. It is. And farting in the elevator is super funny. <laughs> but like, but the idea of like, again, like it was like the copier machine toner. <laughs> like, I don't care. You've lost me at toner. Like I'm out and I don't want to hear your shit one of our friends like worked like the movie projector again not funny i don't care that the reel didn't go on quite like <laughs> it's so boring y'all i mean it's so boring so boring he's laughing right now because he remembers that date night and me staring at him and like pulling my eye my eyelids down like i'm dying if he tells anymore <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's so funny. So obviously, you know, I feel like it's like it's probably like us talking about TV shows when someone else hasn't watched that TV show. It They're probably like, is. Stop talking about it. You're killing me. I don't care what Miriam did this week. If those other people would not be so pointless and boring in their lives, they might be able to keep up with us, though. Oh, God, that's too much. Okay, so how does Midge deal with the fact that she gets on stage, totally tries to do this work humor that that is just awful? Nobody can relate to her at all. She decides to get a comedy writer. A, a bit part for a famous actor named Wally Shawn, who you might remember from The Princess Bride, or you might remember as the voice of the dinosaur toy in the Toy Story movies. This guy's got a very characteristic look and sound and everything. He does, in person, seem like he could be funny and not not just a, a hack who's going to reuse the same jokes he's been selling for like 30 years with Midge. Did you think that he would help the act? I didn't really know what to think about it. I mean, he's such kind of like a goofy character in like that really, um, oh, what is the right? Like dorky, dorky, dorky kind of humor kind of way that it didn't. I'm so unfamiliar with the concept of just hiring a comedy writer out of the newspaper like that. Like the I, the idea of it was such a strange idea. Do you think she was looking for one? Or, yeah. Or do you think she was looking for something else and found one? I think that she was looking for one because, I mean, it. she was kind of like, she wasn't like, oh, my God, just what I need. She was like, there he is. Like, that's that's one. You just list that kind of thing under like personal services or something. It was just in the classifieds. Like, I mean, she had the classifieds and she was reading through and then it was like, comedy writer, bing, she circled it. I mean, she had no reason. She had already got the B. Altman job. She wasn't looking for something else. So I don't know. I mean, it. That Like I said, because it was such a strange service, I was like, that's a thing that I was like, okay, I don't know if he's going to add to this or or how 
how he's it's going to play out. How it played out was not exactly shocking, however, because she spent very little time with him. And he had his system that was all built around jokes he'd already sold. So he just needed to write them down again or maybe even just get a get a preset set of note cards. note cards off the shelf that he written up years ago and then give them to her. Not even bother with her jokes. She doesn't learn them. And she doesn't even look at has them. Has no feel. No, Paul. They might be funny, but you have to tell them in the in the right way. No, see, I I know you're not really remembering the jokes individually right now. Like she was like, my I'm my parents' favorite favorite child, and that's not only because I'm an only child. And she's like, uh, except I have a brother. And then she's like, oh, I have three kids, and the one came home from middle school. And she's like, wait, I have two kids and like, I'm only 26. Like I'd have to have been 13 when I have, like, she like talks it all out. And it's like, so it's like, it's not even like they're not, they, maybe they could have been funny, but it's like, because she only does like humor that she considers like very personal, then it's like, she's sort of like, you can't even deliver these, these cards that are like, so like, like they're just so off from her real life, you know? They're, I mean, they're, they're bits, you know? Just I can't even I I would be I'd be so embarrassed. So, you know, she just has it out with Susie and Susie is so completely pissed at her for, you know, going around behind her back. You know, I do you think Susie was in the wrong in that she just basically expected Midge to just continue to go up there and bomb and really offering nothing other than sometimes comedians bomb and you just have to get used to it. Susie could have been a little more prepared in her role as mentor and kind of accepting the idea that this is a raw talent that is going to need a, you know, a steady hand. But instead, she did what you said, which was just sort of the tough love. You're going to bomb several times. You're going to keep bombing. And, it, and all those things are very true. I mean, even the best comedians these days would recount days of bombing in order to shape their act. But I know? think it's the part that Susie has that, you know, that that cold exterior where she's just she's so unable to even acknowledge how painful it would be to stand up on stage and have, you know, 50 people staring at you, not laughing, just acting like you look like, you know, the they give 20 heads. And she doesn't like acknowledge that for what that is at all. She's like, yes, yeah, so you bombed. I think part of mentoring is, you know, it, you don't have to be friends with the person, but there is some amount of personal back and forth, you know, that just makes a good mentor click better with the mentee. And Susie has set out, you know, verbally that she doesn't want to be friends. In fact, she wants to keep things very, you know, professional. And so um, maybe that's preventing her from clicking in to to reading what it is that Midge needs out of the relationship. Well, and I think that Midge's life is so foreign to her that the idea of her talking about getting a divorce or talking about her kids or talking about her, you know, her upper class lifestyle in some sort of complaining or, you know, upset kind of way just doesn't ring for for Susie like she doesn't have anything to relate to she can't say like oh that happened to me last week and here's how I dealt with it you know yeah like there's just nothing she has to go there and so 
I mean, part of it is just them finding some common ground. It's like you don't have to understand what a divorce feels like, but you can understand loss and disappointment. And you can, you know, you don't have to understand, you know, my parents and my children, but you can understand family problems. You know, I mean, like everybody has had those. They didn't say it, but I wonder if she was at all just pissed at her for A, coming in unprepared, but B, the material, besides not being funny, expressed a complete lack of understanding for the audience and the people that that she would possibly be be talking to. She came in and said, I got my first job today. She's plainly a grown ass woman, you know, and these are people that are coming to a to this speakeasy at night. Right. So maybe they're like her or maybe they've worked every day since they were 16. Yeah. And I know? think I, that is exactly what was going on. Like, I mean, at the one part, she's like she kept harping on the fact that Harriet they use the word Negro, that Harriet is a Negro. And so she deals with the Negro customers. And there is a um, a black man in the audience. And after she says it three or four times, he's like, we get it. She deals with the Negro customers because Harriet is a Negro. We got it. Because it was like there was no punchline. It was like she was just kind of saying this observational stuff. And like you're right. Like these people are like, so what? Like, what are you even there? You're not even making a comment like, uh-huh. Right. We got it. We know what Harriet's job is. <laughs> like, what are you even saying? So you're right. Like, it was that out of touch nature with the crowd that was just like, what in the hell? Well, I- and it's just sort of that attitude that she had about it where it was like so out of touch that she was like, aren't these everyday things sweet and adorable? I mean, can't you imagine? I mean, it's just so great. And And these are like. This is just the boring shit we all have, you know? Yeah. And like, you're not even bringing any new slant. It's just that you are dealing with it for the first time. But it's like, but that's like very personal and not relatable for the rest of us, you know? So it culminates in Midge just saying, forget it. Like, I can't handle this. I can't, at least I can't do it like this. Not with you, Susie, not without support, not just going up there cold, not, you know, you just shoving me up there on stage without any support or any anything. I'm actually quite surprised that Susie, like, didn't want to have some meetings or something before. I mean, I know that Miriam is very busy, I'm sure, with the kids and a job and and coming down there is difficult. But you'd think that there might be like an hour or two or something. I mean, I know they kind of get there over time where there's a little bit more collaboration, but it just sort of feels like I don't really or I assume they'll get there over time. I don't really get how Susie expected Midge to form an act. Exactly. You know, like all by herself. Right, right. Because, yeah, that's a good point. Because she's not telling her how to do it. And Midge is clearly like completely new to the world in many ways. Right. So I'm not sure. It's it's very just like. Susie is not doing her part as a manager. You know, I mean, there's a lot of portions to it beyond the personal, personable portions of it of like, just like, what does this job actually entail? What is being a comedian? Forget about being a woman comedian. But what is what does it mean? What do you do? How do you how do you write things? How do you practice things? How do you what's funny? What's not funny? You know, and there's like small moments where Susie's like, hey, you want to run those cards across with me? You want to practice? And she's like, no, like, I don't want to be stale. I just want to get up there. I don't know. I mean, it's ugh. it's it's hard. It's definitely hard. So but her quitting leads to, you know, taking up this this sort of new angle because Midge is who she is. Right. She is a funny person. And so when Mary invites her to that party and she sort of gets a little taste of that spotlight 
where like you don't really have to be funny all the time, but you can be funny and you can kind of hold court if you want to. Yeah. That was like exhilarating for Midge. Yeah, I've seen I've seen people do that. I've seen you do that in particular. <laughs> and so I know that that's that's exactly what it looks like is just everybody starts gravitating toward the person telling the story and they just are like, tell us more, tell us more. I mean, they don't say that exactly, but that's what they, you know. Have you done it yourself? Like you've you've been that guy. I've seen you do mm -hmm. it. You have. You're like Mr. Drywit though. Like you won't hold court all night, but you will wait, like lie there in the weeds and someone will say something and then you'll totally pop up with some hilarious ass comment that everyone like dies over. And like for like the next three weeks is like, remember what Paul said? And I could have been yakking for three hours, but it was like, your one sly comment was like what they want to talk about. I'm that home run hitter that stays on the bench <laughs> until like the seventh or eighth and then comes in and pow. And then he's like, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, that's true. But those pals don't come every game. Nope. So some parties you may not say one fucking word. That's and right. I'm like, God damn, you didn't say anything. You don't anything. need that guy every time. You didn't say a word daily. Because that guy would be like your third string left fielder at best most of the rest of the time. Well, so know? then what does it look like from your point of view? Like, I know what it looks like from mine to you. What does it look like from you to me? You to me? Oh, meaning me to you. Oh, it just looks like you're you're having a good time. You're in your element and you're and you know, you're doing something that you do very well, which is, you know, taking the true facts of our life and embellishing them beyond the point of you know what actually happened, but you know protect you protect the the, the innocent that way, right? We call it ham boning, Paul. Ham boning, yes. Ham boning it a little. I got ham bone. Yeah. <laughs> so we just get a glimpse into this party scene, and you know we also in that glimpse do get an opportunity to see how the other side of like a woman who did not get married right out of college, but instead went to work, and um, we get a chance to see what those apartments look like and what that scene looks like, and it is very different. It reminded me again of Mad Men of seeing the Drapers and then seeing parties, you know, mm -hmm. and stuff at other people's homes and getting a chance to be like, whoa, like when they go to parties with the the lower ranking writers and creatives yeah, yeah. and things. And it's like a completely just different... all stuffed in on top of each other. Uh huh. And they like they like they didn't even have enough cups and stuff. And it's like, oh my God, it's like crazy. So all right. So that's basically where we left Midge. Again, I feel like it was it was there's a lot of highs and lows for her in this. I mean, really great that she got a job. Really great that she feels like good at it. And like this is something that she could really be successful at. But at the same time, you know, again, there was a lot of moments where I felt like she just didn't quite know how to do it yet. She didn't bring a lock for her locker. She didn't know she, you can't stand on your feet all day. She didn't really know exactly how it was all going to work with the kids. And her parents certainly aren't 100 percent on board, which is, you know, really hard. And then the whole gaslight experience, like, again, she thought she knew how to handle it. And even she thought she could fix it herself. And it's just sort of that. Uh, it's all very hero's journey. You yeah, know? You it's know, a there's, struggle. There's a stage where you have to fall on your face after you've been called to action. The call to action here was you're getting divorced. Yeah. You know, and now you you kind of feel like, OK, well, I can do that for a little bit. And then, bam, reality sets in and you are not good enough. Let's talk about somebody else who has fallen flat on his face. Joel Maisel. Joel we meet up with Joel, like, hanging out in a bar with Archie, and he's, like, singing these, like, weird, I don't even know what, womanizer songs is all I can figure. You know, every person in their life, most normal people anyway, have little fictions that they tell themselves to get along so that they can accept their life. <laughs> you know? Sure. 
Joel seems to be living in a in an out of balance state in the fiction versus reality. Like fiction, he has a a, a woman that he wants. Not not really fiction. He has friends. No, his friends kind of are distancing themselves from. Well, he really him. just has one guy, Archie. Right, and but he's, he's, not even he's, all, him. he's only on loan. Yeah, yeah. When Imogene doesn't know any better, basically. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. And so, yeah, I mean, Joel. I mean, he asked for this. He basically asked for this. But well, and even he thought it was cool that Penny knew to call him at a bar, and knew where to reach him. Like he was like, "I love that you knew to call me here." Like that is a very uh, naive way to think about that. You know that you love it that they knew to call the bar. Like it's it's maybe it's fun because it's fresh and new to you. It's a novelty, but uh, you do not want to you do not want people to know your phone number is at the bar. <laughs> right. Although, again, Gilmore Girls, when people call Luke's to get Lorelai happens as well. Right. Yeah, it does. Right. So we have that that whole setup that they're going to Archie and Joel plan this double date. To go see the music man and boy, does that get like a huge kibosh from Emma Jean when RG has to call and be like, oh, our babysitter can't make it, you know, whatever. And in the background, Emma Jean's like crossing her arms and just like pacing behind him like. Mm-mm-mm. It's not unusual, you know, after married breakups where couples go one way or the other as a couple, you know, and even though Archie may work with him, the couple is landing on on Midge's side. For sure. And, you know, and that can go both ways. I think that Archie is going to be a pal to him at work, but the reality is like, there ain't no double dating. No. You know, like that's not happening. You're not going to force Imogene to hang out with Penny. That's the key to that. Is this the point where he admits that Imogene said no for real reasons or did, was he still trying to cover like some bullshit? He just says like, she's sick. Yeah. You know, okay. that kind of stuff. Like, mm. All right. So it comes up later then. Yeah. yeah. Just sort of like, mm. but, but I would say that that checks the big giant friends box. Like the friends say no penny. Like, <laughs> no, we're not doing it. Then Joel has the audacity to think that this would be a good time to introduce Penny to his parents. This seems shockingly early in such a very unusual situation he is still most definitely married what in what universe is it cool to be a married man with two children to be and this is like a matter of like at best maybe we're talking weeks maybe we could give it a couple of months right maybe maybe at the very best but is it time to introduce the new person that you're already living with? It's hard to judge the exact amount of time because... Um, we know that it is near, is like October time because she was saying when she was there getting the job at B. Altman, she was like, I can't believe they're already interviewing Santa Clauses, you know, when yeah. when we like just had Halloween. So like it's, we know it's about them, but I don't know exactly. Well, we know that they busted up at... Was it Yom Kippur? We do know that. I think that's right. So then in that case, well, to the Google. Hold on. Is that one that stays the same or moves around? Well, it's in September. Okay. So that makes sense because these things at the gaslight and with Susie, they are played like kind of like an ongoing conversation. 
these are, and that's not the kind of conversation that is spaced out like by weeks. You know what I mean? So let me tell you this much. So, so I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want anyone to like jump on us about it. So like just using our like current years, current, like, so in 2017, it was like September 29th to the 30th. In 2018, it was like September 18th to the 19th. 2019, it'll be October 8th to the 9th. 2020, it'll be September 27th to the 28th. So, I mean, generally late September, early October. And we know we're only, we're far enough away from Christmas that she thought it was odd that they were even talking about hiring Santas yet. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're talking about mere weeks here. Definitely. I mean, and we're only as an audience, like two episodes removed from the dinner where they were still trying to convince them that they could still be married. So what did you think about that dinner with Moish and and, um, Shirley? And I mean, they were like, like talking over each other. Moish is like such the showman, you know, he's like telling stories. And every time you get like one sentence in, Shirley's like, it's a dirty joke. He's like, it's not a dirty joke. And he would tell more and she's like, it's a dirty joke. I mean, they were like a comedy team unto themselves. They were very practiced and polished in the in the way that they could put a happy face on with someone that they didn't like, which is not a skill that a lot of people have. No, they don't have these days, but I think that was extremely common back then. He's a he's a successful businessman. He owns a kind of a large business, you know, so I have to interrupt you for a second because it made me think um, I was watching Project Runway last night and these two people had had an argument. This was a Project Runway, Runway All Stars an old one, you guys, if you watch it. And so it was actually, they were sitting there talking and there had been a disagreement. The two guys who were disagreeing was eating with a third guy. And the third guy goes, this reminds me of dinners with my family. And the guy goes, oh, why? Because you have spaghetti? And he goes, no, because this is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> so funny because, I mean, the one guy was like, so out of it, like, oh, why? Because you're having spaghetti? He's like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it's so funny because it's reality TV. So that was, I mean, that man like did that timing. Like, and it was funny, but it was totally like that. Like, I mean, that's how it is now where you just go awkward. Like people would just say it out loud. But back then you just go, go, go. You're not going to let on that anything's going on. Until they do when, when Penny leaves. Instantly, Morse is like, no, no. And he's pissed. He's like, you don't bring her to your parents. I had Yankees tickets. Like he was super pissed, super pissed that he like called this this meeting basically. And, you know, I mean, he was just he was so mad. So he gets a hard no from Moish. Then Shirley comes back to the bathroom and she's like, um, no. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. And she goes, and I'm going to eat her dessert. And she just like reaches over and starts eating it. So when Penny comes up, she's like, oh, I just couldn't help it. I just <laughs> ate your dessert. And it's like, again, people don't even act like that, but it would be so funny if people did. Just like be so bold and then act so like, oh, I just put a spoon in your food and ate it. Like. <laughs> Surely, you're mm. hysterical. I mean, that whole like way of being like I I envy it because it is it's hysterically like there's no it is passive aggressive, but yet it's like all above board. Like she obviously took your dessert, <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's not like uh she didn't pour like salt in it. That's like passive aggressive. But she like took it off your plate and ate it. You know, it's like in your face, you know, love it, love it, love it. So the meet the parents situation both said no. So Joel got like 
doinked over the head, like bam, bam, hard. And they like bring that home so cleanly when he is sitting alone with Penny Pan at the um, Music Man and they start singing, we got trouble. We got trouble. We got trouble right here in River City. Like they're singing it. And it's like he looks over at the empty seats where his friends should be and then looks at Penny like where his wife should be, you know, and it's just like trouble, trouble. And it's it's like perfect, perfect. The music, the the feeling, the build up to that was like you saw on every level of like how Joel was just like slip sliding downhill. Then it ends with him like they're going home and he's like, I got to go to the office. Tells her to get out and just like leaves. What the freaking frig? I mean, that's like messed up. I don't know. I Penny is either a saint or an idiot. I don't know. But the way that she's just like, okay, like enjoy your work. <laughs> like, good God, you know. I just couldn't. I could not. So what happens? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. There was one more. There was one more hard no that Joel suffered. One more hard no. Um, what was it? He brings Ethan back and Rose opens the door and she and he's like, oh, I don't know if I told you that I'm bringing Ethan back. And Ethan goes in and Rose looks at him, and goes, your wife is working and just like closes the door. And again, doink like, oh, my God, because not your ex-wife, your wife. Right. Has right. a job. You didn't even know. You know, and it's like, meanwhile, you're out with Penny Pan by yourself with no friends. Your parents are like giving you the like, what the F face. And your in-laws are like, you happy now? <laughs> right. Did you get all that you asked for? Uh, right. I mean, come up ins, right? So after Great Falls, usually come Great Rises, right? So I'm interested. Yeah, we have episode six coming around the corner here. And I'm hoping that this is like some rock bottom biz for some of these moments, like obviously the Susie Midge fight was like a huge her quitting. I mean, we know that, that that's not going to stay, but we don't really know exactly how that's going to work itself back out. I'm inter interested about the whole party scene and like, can this go somewhere? Because I think that kind of stuff, too. Like, I am a jokester at those party scenes, but I don't feel like I would want to go up on stage and just say the same lines. Like, I don't think people can appreciate what actors comedians are, because think about it. They've said those lines millions of times and they have to act like it's a fresh delivery to you every time they say it. And I'm so like impromptu when I'm acting like a smart ass that I could never I wouldn't even be able to remember what smart ass comment I make. That was so funny. And the no, moment you're, you're very stream of consciousness when you're totally, in the groove. Totally. And so can you imagine having to try to repeat yourself the next night and the next night and the next night and in different towns? And so, oh, gosh, I just. We've seen exhausting. repeat material. It is hard to put up with, to be honest. And didn't it seem. Very uh, not fresh. Like she seemed like she had said it a hundred times. It did. It did. So we had seen Ali Wong and we loved Baby Cobra. So freaking funny. If you guys haven't seen it, highly recommend it. Super funny. But then we saw her follow up after she had had the baby. And the whole thing changed from pre-baby, you know, sexual ex exploits and, and it was funny and all that kind of stuff. And then all of her material after that was about being a new mom, which was fine. I mean, there was really, really, really funny parts to it. But we came back a year later to see her do her her show again, thinking it's a year later and we're in the same city. Y'all, 
as soon as we sat down, she started off with the first line. It was the exact same thing. We were both like, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Like she, she went line by line by line. And I was like, oh no. And it was the same delivery. So, oh. you know, pros can do it. But to us, it did sound overly rehearsed and, and not lifelike anymore. Yeah. I mean, it really lost a lot. So, so I respect to the whole idea of like, you know, getting stale and how that would all come off. I don't know exactly how Susie and Midge are going to figure this out because, you know, we have seen through season one. And so we, you know, we know that it, we're, it's still pretty up in the air. I'm like, how is this all going to work out? You know, how is this really going to work? I'm looking forward to it. What do you think about this episode as a whole? What do you think of Doink and the whole concept of everybody kind of getting smacked upside the head? Oh, this is a necessary step in this in a, in a, in a believable and enjoyable journey for a hero or heroine, you've got to struggle. I mean, if it, if she just strolled into superstardom as a comedian, we'd all be like, uh, well, I mean, it, you're funny, but this is not believable anymore. Right. So, yeah, they had to do this. And I think that it also, like, it gives us an opportunity to, like, stop and examine, like, that the relationship between, like, Midge and Susie and say, like, you know, hang on a second. You know, this was a lot about Midge becoming on board. And then it was sort of like, OK, Midge is on board, Susie. Uh, are you going to step up and, like, do what you need to do to have her be successful? This is, you know, a give and take situation. And And again, just watching Abe and Rose try to get on board with this fast moving train that is Miriam is really exciting to watch. I think, I think it's, it's fun. It's entertaining. And I've seen this, this particular episode, at least I would say four or five times and it's funny every time. So I highly recommend it. You guys, if you guys had favorite parts, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out on so many shows.com or on Facebook on daily review on Twitter. And we'd love to hear from you guys. Thanks a lot. Catch us on iTunes or your preferred podcast software, our website, dailyreview.com, that's D-A-L-E-Y review.com, Facebook or Twitter, or wherever you find us, please leave us a comment and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for listening, pod people. Thanks for listening to my mom and dad. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Just go home, folks.